All right, hello everyone, and welcome to a special roundtable-style discussion-slash-review of the 2021 sequel-slash-remake <laughs> re uh, of Candyman. Now, my name is Robert Winfrey. I'm going to be playing a little bit more host, facilitator. I believe Mark called me the Tony Schiavone of this particular podcast, which is a wrestling reference. I'm not sure how many of you will get. But I get to play, uh, I get to kind of, you know, play moderator here more than give a tremendous amount of my own opinion. If you're interested in my in-depth thoughts and analysis of this particular film, I would happily direct you to the Damn You Hollywood episode that went live earlier today. It's somewhat lengthy, but Mark and I had a very in-depth quality discussion about the film, some of the themes that it touches on, etc., etc. So, if you want my nuanced perspective on that, go over there, give that a listen, that the movie gets the full damn you Hollywood treatment over there. Here, we're not going to be doing the discussions of the money or the critical review, so to uh, bit where we make fun of critics who are terrible at their jobs. This is going to be a few of us kind of kicking the ball around in a more informal setting because we didn't want to have eight people on the <laughs> regular podcast, so we just split this up, this, this episode up this particular way. So that's what you're in store for tonight. And joining me on this particular episode... First of all, from Honeysuckle Rose Creations, she just got back from the great state of Colorado, uh, where she sold plenty of merchandise and observed a tremendous amount of Loki variants. Alexis Haina, how are you doing, Alexis? Doing good. Covering up every mirror in my house now. You're a bit of a scaredy cat. You like horror, but I don't... I, uh, this movie didn't scare me as much as I hoped it would. But, well, uh, of course it didn't. You no soul. We know that. Hey, speaking of no souls, Jason Teasley. <laughs> hey, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I, not so much covering up mirrors because of Candyman. It's just because I'm that damn ugly. That I completely empathize with. And joining us for the first time, we have uh, a friend and uh, business associate of Alexis's, a horror director. Well, uh, uh, more than just horror, but a horror director from the Kansas City area, Mr. Dorian Price. Ooh. Sir, welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And um, I'm, I'm not covering up mirrors. I'm, I'm actually, you know, hoping he'll come by. He never answers. Candyman never answers my calls. I feel hurt. I feel you know, really, really, you know, just rejected. But, you know, I think I'll move through it. Well, yeah, sadly, the miserable existence we live in persists. And that's my, and we that is my, <laughs> that's my bit of pointless nihilism out of the way for the evening. All right, so before Yay! we get in, before we get into this movie in particular, I want to just go briefly around the horn and your, any history, uh, or thoughts you had on the. Try to stay away from talking about Candyman two and three. They're terrible movies, like not even enjoyably <laughs> terrible. But the original can't. If they're look, man. I, all I can do is speak the truth, right? They're not good movies, but the first one, the 1992 original starring Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen. Uh, if you have any history with that, thoughts on that particular film or the fran the franchise more generally, if you you know have anything that you want to say about it in relatively succinct fashion, uh, Alexis, I'll start with you. So thoughts on the original, expectations coming into this, just you know, 50 words or less kind of deal. Uh, I actually just saw the original film, I think it was like a year or two ago. I'd never actually gotten around to seeing it. Absolutely loved it. We talk of such a great 
such a threatening performance and appearance. The way that he walks and talks as the candy man, it really is terrifying. And it's so refreshing to watch that film and see so many staples of horror that are still being used to this day. And you realize just how iconic that film actually is. I've said this before. If you could create an actor in a lab that was the perfect actor for the horror genre, you would just get Tony Todd. Just get Tony. Uh, J- Jason. Uh, I actually watched it back in the day. Um, and no, I won't go off on a tangent and talk about other horror movies like certain people on this previous episodes reviewing Candyman. But yeah, I mean, I seen a uh, video store. I didn't watch it in a theater, but I did watch a video store and I was absolutely terrified. Though I, I fully agree, Tony Todd is like the epitome of the perfect horror villain. All right, and Dorian. Yeah, um, I actually, this is a big favorite of mine from back when I was a young teenager. I, I have loved horror movies since uh, I got introduced to the classic uh, Universal Monsters back in the Candyman was very interesting to me because um, I had uh, actually brought up something really weird when I was a kid and got shunned. I was like, why aren't there more black guy horror villains? Everyone's like, oh, no, shut up, shut up, sit over there. Um, but <laughs> I actually, I loved this movie. Um, I had, before seeing it, was lucky enough to read the Clive Barker short story, uh, Candyman from the Books of Blood, which I'll probably talk about later. But the first film I loved so much because I felt like it was a combination of the original story and also making the horror monster a romantic figure in, all, uh, in the footsteps of Dracula. For him. Uh, there was a Bela Lugosi quality to Tony Todd's performance that I, I absolutely was enraptured with and loved. And um, uh, to answer the other part of your question, coming to this film, I was hoping that that, that would return. Uh, without doing any spoilers, they, they didn't, in this film, do so much the romantic thing, but that was fine because the direction they went in, I felt, was, was beautiful. But again, I'll talk on that later. But on the first film alone, I, I will talk about the sequels later, maybe. But um, on the first film alone, absolutely loved it. One of my favorites um, from childhood. And actually, it was one of the things that inspired me um, to get into film. And just, just from the cinematography alone, I'm sure that wasn't 50 words, but we're close. You're close enough. Uh, all right. So as for this, I'm not going to do the full plot synopsis I usually do. I'm just going to give a, you know a paragraph or so about this. The latest incarnation of this particular film primarily follows love the wiki up, uh, Anthony McCoy, who is a painter slash visual artist living in Chicago with his girlfriend Brianna. He stumbles across the legend of the Candyman. Somewhat incidentally, he takes artistic inspiration from it. And his sort of bringing it back into the public consciousness, some people wind up summoning Candyman because people are idiots in horror movies. Otherwise, there would be no horror. So we just kind of so we allow them. We allow for that. Uh, And he slowly spirals into madness, eventually realizes he was. Uh, the child from the original Candyman that was nearly immolated and saved by Helen Lyle. And he is... My issues with the ending of this movie aside, uh, he is eventually transformed into the latest sort of incarnation of the Candyman villain. He is brought into the fold of tragic uh, of tragedy that continues to give power to the myth and 
uh, that's kind of where the story ends with the Candyman being sort of revivified and our one shot of Tony Todd where they decided to digitally de-age him and I wanted to scream because you don't need that. He's st- one, Tony Todd still looks great. And two, if he's a little more, ol- if he's a little older and a little more, you know, rugged, I think that adds to the overall thing rather than detracts from it. Uh, who employs uh, Brianna to continue telling everyone about his legend. So that's now. There's a lot more that goes into that, and there's obviously a lot of nuance and detail that I'm skipping for the sake of brevity. But uh, that's that's our setup. That's again kind of your loose synopsis. So I don't know where you guys want to start, but uh, Dorian, I'll give you first crack at this. Uh, any you know, what uh, your major takeaways, good, bad, or otherwise? Anything you want to bring up? Um, first of all. What has to be said is the cinematography on this movie and the director and the cinematographer working together for the shots they created is absolutely beautiful. They had a way of making Chicago look both, you know, okay, this is how Chicago looks, but with a very quick tilt of a camera or a pan to the side, add this haunting factor that really, really gave the film its own world in a way. Where it's a Chicago that, you know, if you've been to Chicago, you know what it looks like, but there's like this veil over it when situations begin to get darker as if the Candyman character himself is being brought forth from the camera in the shots they choose. So it's this other world that he kind of holds sway in. That was my my biggest takeaway, first of all. The acting was pretty much on point. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect movie. Um, I mean, there's I'm saying it, and I'll I'll leave the light on for the, the Torches and Pitchfork crew, but Citizen Kane Vertigo, both of those have not great acting moments in them, but as a whole, they're still amazing movies. This film, I felt, really held on to the torch of the first one. I love that they connected it to the first one. Um, It seems to be a style of legacy films that we're having now, obviously with the 2018 Halloween and its subsequent sequel, um, Halloween Halloween Kills, excuse me, uh, coming out this year, of attaching it to something in the first movie, keeping it in that world, but being able to take the story in a different way, and I really appreciated that they did that. Finally, before I, I, I put the mic down, the use of the um, the paper shadow puppets was probably one of the most terrifying things in the film, because it is so surreal, and I absolutely loved it. So, th- those, are my, those are my first thoughts, obviously, take, going away from the film, what, what I thought right as I was leaving the theater. Uh, I I absolutely agree with you on the shadow puppet usage. That was really nice. It's a it's a really wonderful little aesthetic choice that a lot of movies are able to find ways to sneak that kind of thing into. And I personally love it. Like even if they're not deliberately scary, it's just a fun uh, little break in the style to uh, to kind of ke- you know catch your attention and give you a breather from some of the other stuff. Uh, Jason, good. No, I was just saying absolutely. I, I, it would have been so much easier. For, they could have easily fallen into that, let's do it CGI style, but they didn't. So, yes, I was agreeing with you. I'm shutting oh. up now. No, no, you're fine, man. Uh, and, yeah, I agree. Oh, thank heavens they didn't try to CGI that stuff. It just it wasn't necessary. The right. the roughness of it actually adds to its appeal. <laughs> Agreed. All right, Jason, uh, anything from that that you wanted to bring up or any of your own thoughts? Uh, it's a, uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, the the Shadow Puppets did give a really nice, um, kind of grounded, gritty uh, appeal to it, which I really enjoyed, uh, you know, to uh, continue on that point. I, I love this movie. I mean, 
okay, let's say, let's be honest. I loved 80% of this movie, and I'm sure we'll get into that shortly. I just like how it was just, like, really gritty. It updated the story, but yet held true to its roots, uh, which was a really nice uh, thing because watching it, and, you know, you get those little Easter eggs, you get those little callbacks, and to see how everything's interwoven, I, I think was a really great thing. And, you know, like I said, it, it brought back a lot of nostalgia from when I first seen the first Candyman and actually was able to improve on it a little bit by updating it. So I was really pleased with the movie. But like I said, I mean, of course, there are some downfalls that there wasn't. I wouldn't be here. But, you know, 80 percent of this movie, I was absolutely entrenched in. I actually sent Mark a message 10 minutes into the movie and said, uh, I'm. I'm hooked. I, this movie, I can't wait to review this because I, I'm giddy right now. And he, he just sent a message back. He said, yeah, and he just said, sent Jason, a movie did, back. Say, Jason, did you just do a fucking Tickford review? I'm hooked. No, actually, no, actually, <laughs> you know, because my vocabulary isn't extensive as Robert's. It just was the first thing that came out. <sighs> I wasn't going to touch it. I was like, is he making a pun? Let's just let this one slide. Let's keep going. Oh, we're good. Uh, yeah, sorry. I heard that and I was like, damn it, that's a tick putt. That, that's a tick bird review right there. You know somebody. I'm sorry. Actually, I got to ask you, Robert. You did the critical review on Rotten Tomatoes. Did yes, anyone sir. actually use that line? I it's It gets you hooked or it's it hooked me in any of that? Uh, not that Mark and I saw. We didn't go through. Everything. We got. We did basically two hours talking the movie, and then we kind of we kind of sped through the last half of it, the last couple of segments. So we didn't get too deep into the critical uh, review, but I'm sure somewhere in there someone did. We just, just none of the ones that we saw. A lot of the ones that we saw, I complained about critics going, "Well, this movie sure has a lot to say," because that's just the most ridiculous bit of. It's so unhelpful if you're trying to review a movie if that's the sum total of what you say about it. So, but, Fair enough. So I, I, I got to yell at some of those people. and No, there were some bad ones, but I, there were no... We didn't get a lot of the puns that we... There was one. There was one guy, I can't remember who it was, who said that... Who called the movie a, a like, sticky sweet treat for the fans, and I just wanted to punch him in the face. <laughs> Uh, okay, Jason, we kind of cut you off there. I was I was pretty much done. Uh, then then you know you guys came at me with the the <laughs> pitchforks and started making fun of me and hurt my feelings. And so I just I just be quiet now till I caught up on. I just had to know if it was a deliberate pun or not. Is all. I I I apologize if I hurt your feelings. Uh, all right, Alexis. First thoughts, first impressions, first things you wanted to mention? Firstly, I am glad that we're all in agreement about the shadow puppets. It is very tricky for films to find a clever way to incorporate flashbacks and a story within a story to their motif. And this did such a good job of doing that. It, it reminded me a lot of uh, the scene from, I think it's the first Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, the way they tell the story of, of the Deathly Hallows and the mm -hmm. Death and the Three Brothers. Uh, it, it was a really, really unique way of doing it, and I loved it. And I agree with Dorian on about the cinematography. The use of mirrors and reflective surfaces in this film was inspiring. It 
kind of called back to uh, Rob. Remember when we wa- we reviewed uh, the Invisible Man uh, mm-hmm. last year, and we talked about how there were many shots that would linger on the background, and you found yourself purposely looking around trying to see if you could see a hint that uh, the, the the Invisible Man was there. It's like did did that furniture just move? Did the curtain just move? Well, they you do the same thing here. There are so many shots with so many reflective surfaces. And nine times out of ten, you're looking around looking for some hint. And, yeah, there are so many shots where you can see the hint of that brown coat in the reflection, in the background. The subtlety of it is breathtaking, and I loved it. I love films that do that. It's not an over-the-top scare. It's a little paranoia. Is someone there? And that is so great to see a film that knows how to incorporate a light touch like that. Uh, yeah, I agree. I like stuff that you know, happens just a little bit off-center, a little bit out of focus. Uh, Mark brought an interesting point up when we reviewed the movie, that a lot of horror movies, you should never have kind of the flat shot. It should There should always be something happening that plays around with depth and perspective. And it's as a way to just kind of keep your audience engaged, uh, and I, I tend to agree with that. Uh, Jason, I want to come back to you for just a second. Not the highest body count uh, that we've that we get in a horror movie, but we had some decent kills here. So, which one was your favorite? What was your favorite, like actual like slashing and death sequence? Wow, that that's that's hard. I'm gonna have to say I want to have to say the first one in the uh, the art museum, uh, the the girl, because it, it's subtle. Like you kind of catch it out the corner of your eye, and then it's like right on top of you. So I like it for not so much the gore factor. It's just the the anticipation because you see the flashes, and then it just is like right up on you and happens. So I'm going to go with the, the girl in the uh, art museum. All right. Uh, Dorian, same question. I mean, you're, you're kind of a horror guy, so we had some decent kills here. So, again, which sequence did you find the most effective? Which one you know, stru- stuck out to you the most, if any? Um. <clears throat> The coming out of the out of the door with the and again I don't want to spoil anything for the audience. Um, ah, go ahead. We don't that, care. That, that, well, the, <laughs> we we was... do we usually do spoilers, Dorian. A- a- anyone who is listening or watching this or whatever, we have to assume they've already seen the movie. So go ahead. That's that's fair. Um, it's 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 the one where they're coming out and and the camera goes up and the kill just just comes out of nowhere, but it's so seamlessly done, and um, that it it just ah, there, there's just not words for it. It was, it just, that, that stayed with me. Like I had to kind of catch back up with the movie um, two minutes later, like, oh shit, things are still happening. I apologize. I'm here. Uh, I just completely missed that. Um, but that, that was the best kill in my opinion of, of the film. Um, they, I did like though that they, they called back to some of the things, unfortunately in the second one, when um, the guy dies in the police station and the cops looking at the footage and, you see the guy rise up in the frame and there's nothing behind him, you know, holding him up. Um, and <clears throat> that was, that was cool too. But the, the, the coming out of the building one was, was absolutely my favorite by far. All right, Alexis, same question. Definitely the art critic death. It took me so such <laughs> by surprise and it was so creative and so different. We zoom out of this high rise 
loft building apartment, whatever it is, you don't hear her scream. You don't see any trace of the killer. It's completely invisible. It was so sudden. You don't even expect it to happen that quickly. You know she's good. You know she's going to die. You know she said Candyman off screen. By the way, nice touch with that. We did not need to see her saying it. We knew she did it while uh, Anthony was having uh, mini meltdown number three. I think it was. I and the way four at that point, but close enough. Three or four, give or take. And the way that the camera zooms out, showing all these people around her in their apartment, having no idea that this woman is being dragged against the glass, leaving blood behind her, was so terrifying. I loved it. Well, that particular sequence also is a... The way she's dragged across that glass is a very deliberate visual callback to that first line of black paint that Anthony paints across the canvas when he gets his inspiration uh, a little bit back. So uh, Good eye even catch that nice one yeah i see I, weird I, I, I see weird stuff <laughs> uh dorian i, I want to ask you something very briefly about uh a little bit about that sequence i got a very uh f- the sequence that from anthony arriving at that uh at, at that you know apartment complex or whatever to him leaving the art critic and she and her getting murdered I got a real kind of Stanley Kubrick shining vibe out of that whole sequence. Am I am I swinging at air there? Like the the use of no. tracking shots, colors, shapes. I would have to agree. Um, that is that is something that is in a lot of horror films. I'm not um, I'm not in any way insulting uh, Mrs. DaCosta, who was uh, the director. Um, but there's there's a lot of directors that do that. But yeah, that even watching it myself, I was like, oh. Here's our here's our nod to or excuse me her name is Nia DaCosta just so you know the comment section doesn't go crazy I apologize but yeah it, it was a very Kubrickian um, shot and again I felt that too I was like that's nice I like that that's that that again it adds that air of it's not telegraphing to the audience but it is letting them know hey something kind of weird's gonna happen or maybe it won't stay tuned. But, again, that's kind of Kubrick's bag of tricks. But, yeah, no, I, I would have to completely agree. I got the same vibe entirely. I, got a, I also got a little bit of, and this might be a slightly deeper cut, I got a kind of Dario Argento vibe in a couple of places out of this. Yes. Dario, like, calm Dario. Like, he's had some chamomile tea. He might yeah. have half a Valium. You know, not so, okay, Dario, the entire screen is red now. We can't see anything. Um, like, like, uh, some of I, his, like, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I think specifically the scene with Brianna, uh, Brianna, when she goes to the um, art museum. Like, there's just some tracking, sh- like, some of the shots as they're coming up the staircase, the... Uh, and the staircase is set in a very, like, very obviously uh, sharply ovate uh, setting, and then the kind of slow tracking in shot when they're talking in front of that art exhibit. That I don't know. That just gave me a little bit of an Argento vibe. Yeah, definitely his Gaio um, style that he had, especially during the early '70s. Yes, I, I would, I would absolutely agree. Okay, uh, Jason. Anything else? That, I'm just curious. You know, this is a movie, and I don't mean this as an insult at all. This is a movie that kind of wears some of its influences on its sleeve. And again, I mean that as a compliment. Because it does. it's not just homage after homage. It's, you know, this is where I draw inspiration from, and here's my twist on it. Uh, what, other kind of, you know, what other kind of stuff did you pick up on? 
or anything that stuck out to you as just you know as watching it and going, oh, this, I, I this looks you know vaguely familiar. Yeah. Uh, wow. I mean, <laughs> you're asking me all these tough questions, Robert. Uh, <laughs> make me actually think. Make me actually think and participate. Now, I, I don't. I just see like a lot of blending. I didn't really see like couldn't really pinpoint anything specific. Uh, it was a lot of blending to the older, um, at least in my perspective, to like the older um, horror movies where it it was more show don't tell and the anticipation building up rather than slap you across the face, you know, slasher that we've come to see in recent movies. Uh, I, I, the older, the anticipation, like, you know, like what's lurking in the shadows, what, what can happen, uh, rather than, you know, being right up in your face, this is what's going to happen. Uh, and that's where I, I drew a lot of my eyes going through is more of the background anticipation rather than what was actually going on. Because like you guys, uh, uh, stated earlier, you catch yourself, at least I did, um, looking toward the background to be like, okay, well, okay, we know that this is going to happen. We know we know something's about to happen, but when is it? What's the build-up to it? And, and that's where I just seen me getting into that comfort zone. So what made me love, fall in love with horror movies as I was growing up? All right, Alexis, uh, anything that you wanted to spin off from that particular discussion? or I got another slightly different one for you if if you don't have a, a whole lot that you wanted to add there. This movie is uh-huh. full of callbacks and of references and little Easter eggs and whatnot. And again, I mean this as a compliment. So any of those that, that might have stood out to you? Yeah, I might be reaching a little bit, but did anyone else feel, again, going back to the Shadow Puppets, we got a little bit of the cabinet Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the very, very German expressionism, yes. Exactly. That, that, yeah, that's what exactly I was saying. Something about that just really rang with my... It's like I'm watching those scenes, I'm like, I'm getting flashbacks to all the times I had to pay attention in film class in college. Shame on you. Shame. Uh, also, also, in a, a similar kind of style, there the end of... God, there's a... There's a great, I forget, it's, it's a few years old at this point, but there's a great uh, deliberately uh, silent movie adaptation of Call of Cthulhu, and the entire Escape from Villiers is done in very similar styles because they're trying to be, uh, they're trying to deal with some impossible geometry and whatnot that you get in that particular sequence, and it, similar vibes. Uh, so I, I'm with you. That was, uh, you know, the limbs yeah, all being really, slightly long. Like, you <laughs> yeah. really get a sense of classic black and white horror expressionism in the puppetry you see it especially during the end credits where we actually see the the bits that they used for that first teaser trailer mm-hmm. uh which again haunting way to end it and i loved how those scenes was like were able to convey so much through silence and music and the puppetry well if i can just pounce on what she said just now i mm-hmm. want to give the movie a huge compliment for doing something that to this point Marvel has been really the only ones to succeed in is letting people sit through the credits because as a director as as someone who's been on a lot of film sets as crew 
those credits are your only, you know, standing ovation. You know, that's the only time the audience really gets to see what you, you put into it. You know, the actors are on, on screen the entire time, and, you know, the credits are, are very important. So, But if you're not, like, a film nerd or, you know, studying film, you probably don't sit through the credits. But for Marvel, you know, they have that after credit scene. You got, you got to wait. You got to wait. Hope you went to the bathroom during the boring part because, you know, you got to wait to the end. This made the credits interesting in the sense that you wanted to sit through them because, you know, the puppet stuff is still going on. And, you know, you're wondering, oh, wait, is the story over? Is there something else? You know, so I, I that's I, – I, I guess I should have said that while I was talking about Shadow Puppets the first time. Um, and they got, they're not really Shadow Puppets. They're paper Shadow Puppets, just so people aren't getting the idea if they haven't seen the movie that, like, someone's taking their hand and going, I'm a crocodile um, across the screen. Um, that was that was, that was was beautifully done in my, my opinion. But I just wanted to pounce on that before we moved on. No, that's a great point. Uh you know, there's a lot of people who put a lot of work into film, and you know, that you know, that is kind of the only shout out they get most of the time. So you're entirely correct in that. This is our PSA. Hey, folks, stay for the credits. People worked hard on this for you. Finish your popcorn. <laughs> yeah, please don't. There's a reason they're required to air all to you know, air all of them instead of being able to cut them off early. Uh, right. I want. What did I want to bring up next? Um, okay, I. This might seem like an odd point, but personally, I really wished we'd have gotten uh, we'd have gotten Tony Todd back sooner for this movie. I want. I think this film was missing a little bit of his presence in his narration. Uh, and my my idea, such as it is, I mean, I just watched the thing. I have. I you know. Haven't put a trim, I haven't been able to you know really sit down and dissect uh, my thought process on this, but my idea as I kind of thought about it a bit was, we start this um, this particular iteration of Candyman with Sherwin, the character that we're introduced early, who is uh, just hiding in the walls of <laughs> like God, that is that might have been the creepiest thing in this entire movie for me is when he just steps out of that big hole in the wall uh, very early. It's like okay then. Because there's nothing supernatural about it. It's just a slightly off-putting man who you didn't know was there coming out of a wall and standing in front of a young boy. Like, boy, that doesn't just creep you out. But they uh, never actually. Okay, they never actually. But I always figured that this guy was a um, little mentally slow. I mean, I mean, just like it's a dude with a hook in his hand who gives out candy. The way he walks up to this boy smiling and holding the candy. It's like, okay, you either, you know, either your mother drank alcohol when you were in her stomach or you are perfectly trying to be a whore. Take your pick. Yeah. But I... I more saw... Go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I was was more seeing it as a a, a kind of an Easter egg callback to the original one um in 92 where they were talking about like there were other candy men out there and maybe this was just one of the many so i felt that that was really it was not only an easter egg but kind of a smoke screen early on to keep us more on our toes like wait is is this our villain you know you know because back in the day you know they they they'd reveal the villain and it's like, okay, here's your bad guy. Everybody got that? Okay, we're moving to the next thing. This, I felt, was more of a smokescreen that was more more to grab the audience and go, wait, what? Okay. Okay, Jason, any thoughts so far on that? 
Uh, I mean, I I don't. Uh, I was for some reason I was thinking that he didn't have the hook. He was just a a kindly elder man who, like you know, like you typically see in not so much big cities, but you know, smaller towns like where I'm from. You have that like neighborhood guy that you know is always nice to everybody in the neighborhood and you know and people uh, and you know the kids kind of know that he's got the quote unquote grandpa candy that he gives out to the kids you know as, as you know a reward for something something like that now uh, going off what Doria said is I did like the aspect that they didn't basically solidify Candyman as one person it was like different incarnations through time. Uh, and I think that they handled that uh, amazing. Uh, and how they went through. And, you know, do you see the progression of anger as he's talking about each each one of the people that he painted as the incarnation of Candyman? And I really thought that was really well done. Yeah, I see a lot of that. Even the dog agrees. No, I, yeah, I, I think Cleo's the... with us, you know. I think the only thing I would have liked is if, because so much of the Candyman that we see on screen, to the extent that we do, is Sherwin, I actually would have liked that as Anthony gets deeper and deeper into his madness and following the story back through its various iterations, each time he discovers a new person, we get that's the person who shows up in the coat with the hook. And this and this one would you know kind of culminate with our last few sequences being Tony Todd's Daniel Robitaille. Instead of just the one that we, instead of just kind of fixating on the most recent one, but uh, look, that's me selfishly wanting Tony Todd on my screen, uh, being awesome because that's what he does. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's great to have Tony Todd on the screen to choose scenery and just be awesome. I absolutely agree. Like, I I actually thought from the first couple of trailers that, and when they announced on, uh, I think it was Horror Hound or Shock to You Drop that Todd was returning for this. Like, I kind of called it when I saw the trailer. I'm like, oh, man, this artist is going to, like, kind of fall to the dark side. He's going to become Candyman. And, like, in my head, I guess I wrote my own fan fiction version of the movie <laughs> where, like, each time as he got darker, part of him would, you know... And you could do this with insert shots and how you put your camera is that um, part of him would turn into Todd. Like, if we had a point where we saw him as Todd is now, not just the in his 70s, late 60s, I can't remember. Um, but, like, <clears throat> starting with his hand, maybe his hand is, like, now old and wrinkly, or, like, one side of his face has something that, you know, Todd has, and slowly but surely he morphs into Todd by the end of the film, and then we get the, the iconic line, you know, be my victim. Um, and <clears throat> that's where we go. That's what I would have personally liked to see, because Tony Todd is you know, Candyman to me, and he always will be. Like, I know, sadly, eventually he's going to pass away, and if the story needs to continue, then somebody else will have to step in and, and take over. But, you know, it's like, as long as we have him alive, come on, you know, let's let's use him, you know. But at the same time, not beating it like the dead horse that they did with Hellraiser, where poor Doug Bradley was like, I'm so done with all of you. But since that's another Clive Barker thing, hey, connect. Well, to be fair, they did finally reach a point when even Doug Bradley said no more. And can right. we yeah, he made that t-shirt that was like, stop making sequels, it's a waste of good celluloid. <laughs> That's a good line. Um, now, loosely, it... I got a jacket. 
I gotta jump in. We're talking about John Connors. We haven't really talked about the other actors. You know, we got Yahya Abdul Machine the second playing Anthony, who uh, we previously saw in Aquaman, and who was also one of the leads in the Watchmen TV series. We got uh, Tavana Paris, who we were talking about this earlier. This is um, Mon- uh, Monica Rambeau, and she's now a part of the MCU. And it was, I just thought all the actors did such a great job with this. Well, I wanted so, to. Do- what, what you guys think? agreed. I'd agree with that. I don't think there's a bad performance to be had here. I just wanted to dovetail off of something that uh, Dorian had brought up there. Alexis, I'll start with you on this. This movie touches on a lot of different genres of horror to varying degrees of success. But the combination of whatever combination they did of uh, practical effects and CGI to make uh, poor Anthony's arm and then eventually his face wither. That is some that is some top-notch body horror almost. Like, that was some creepy stuff. What's the name of the fear of uh, lots and lots of holes, symmetrical holes? There's a name for that. There's a name for everything. Uh, I... uh, what was that, yeah, I... It's uh, I believe it's tryptophobia. Tryptophobia, yeah. The minute I saw, you could see almost a a hive pattern emerging under his skin. Nice little touch, by the way. But yeah, when you see how badly his arm has deformed and up to his face, I looked, I'm like, there are some people in this audience who have tryptophobia and they are just squirming so uncomfortably in their seats right now. (laughs) Because... I mean, I don't technically have tryptophobia, but even I admit all the holes in the skin. Like, I was expecting bees to start flying out. of it. Again, you see the hive pattern. I thought we were going to get bees flying out of that. I would have loved that. I, yeah, something akin to uh, stories to tell in the dark, the scene with the spider coming out of the girl's face. Yeah. Hopefully with less grade C CGI. Again, they did a good job toning down a lot of the CGI. I think the effect I really liked the most was how they were able to have the bees, which are obviously CGI now. We're not going to pay Mr. Tony Todd for how many times he gets stung this time. But I loved how they were able to do the scenes where the bees would basically fly into the mirrors and then were on the other side as if walking on the glass. That was a very clever idea, and I really liked it. Yeah, Jason. Entirely. Jason, I want to ask you something real quick. Um, The fact that all of the opening um, credits for the you know the the studios and the production companies, those were all backwards for me. Like they were literal mirror images. Was that just me? Is that every? I just want to make sure that's everybody. No, that was for me too. Yeah, I'm not the only one when that movie started. Just then, they're going, "Is this on purpose, or did somebody screw up in the projection room?" (laughs) Well, a little bit, but I I like that. As a former projectionist at a at a theater, uh, when I seen it, uh, you know, there's certain things you look for. uh, You learn through the trade that you look for. So when it popped up like that, I was like, "Is this?" So I started looking for visual cues that you know. Whenever I'd done a film and I made that mistake because it did happen, you know, I started looking for the visual cues. And then I kind of realized what was going on because it was like taking the audience and projecting us out through, like, the eyes of the mirror. And once you realize that, it adds a whole different layer to this movie, in my opinion. Absolutely agree. 
Yeah, I thought it was a fun little trick. Yeah. Uh, okay, we've... Let's see, we mentioned the acting. Because uh, I, I don't think there's a bad performance to be had here. I uh, I really did, you know, the more I think about it, the more I kind of enjoy uh, Yahab Abdul-Mateen. Uh, being a horror protagonist is not the easiest thing in the world, believe it or not. There's a lot of people that are cast in that kind of position and do it very badly. It's why the good ones stand out so much. So, uh, Dorian, I'm just kind of curious. What, do, in a more kind of generalized sense, what do you think makes a good horror protagonist, uh, especially the tragic kind? And you know, what about his performance? You kind of helped you along in believing in him and rooting for him. To me, it's a three—it's <clears throat> a three-step pro- program. It starts with the writing. If the writing isn't strong, you can get Marlon Brando, you know, Robert Downey Jr., whoever you want to get. And it's, it's not going to land right. You know, they can do as, as, as well as possible. If the writing's not there, it's not going to happen. But that brings us, if the writing's not good, that brings us to, or if the writing is good, that brings us to the second part, which is the directing. The directing has to be, you know, they have to know the story. They have to feel the story. They have to know where it's going. They have to be able to communicate to the actors, and the actors communicate back with them where the, the level is going, where, where, where we're heading on this. And obviously that brings us to the, the actor themselves. Um... What I loved about his performance is it was very almost a Shakespearean tragedy without being an iambic pentameter, you know, everything rhyming. Um, it was he really he brought this obsession, but it wasn't like a Victor Frankenstein style obsession where it's like, you know, I'm going to defeat death, this is what God will feel like. It was a curiosity. And he took something as simple as curiosity killed the cat and gave it to us in such a relatable way that you're looking at it going, oh my god, this could happen to me if I'm not careful. <laughs> um, yeah, there's... But... Keep going, yeah. sorry. Oh, no, no, that was basically the, the, the wrapping up point. Uh, just in that same vein, the, the kind of middle segment of this movie, which is his descent into madness... I got a real, like, Lovecraft vibe out of that. It's it's specific parts of Lovecraft's work, but he does a lot with the kind of sensitive artist who descends into almost, like, atavastic or predestined uh, tragedy slash horror, and uh, it really worked for the middle portion of this. I actually wanted more of that. Like, I, I wanted his descent into madness to be a little bit more drawn out because it, it was conveyed so well. I, I agree. Um, suggested reading, I know we're talking about Mark Barker, but um, if you get the chance, read, um, for, for if you like characters like this, uh, read H.P. Lovecraft's Rats in the Walls, yeah. and of course, um, Pickman's Model. Um, mm-hmm. You'll have that same descent in the madness. But I completely agree with you. What with, there, there's, there's too often the easy way out with horror protagonists, where we, we take them through hell, you know, they discover the monster, no one believes them, everyone thinks it's them, which was a, you know, huge curse of both the um, second and the third movie of the Candyman series. Uh, in this one, they made it more of a personal journey, which I, I appreciated. They let us really just kind of walk along with him, and as he interacted with things, so did we interact with things. There was a couple times, you know, obviously, he's not staring at it, but we are, because we are the on-high observer. You know, the two planets, you know, the planet we're on and the planet where this is taking place are just in line enough that we can see what's happening, but it's passing out of our view. So his tragic, um, tragic 
journey, excuse me, really was able to be walked with, and you were almost wanting, with his performance alone, um, wanting to like claw at him, like, no, don't go down there, um, don't, don't, don't keep doing this. We know where it goes. Please listen to us. And very much in another literary form of you know Scrooge and the ghosts, it's like they can neither hear nor see you. You just kind of have to watch this play out. You know, and that is another part of horror is that you can get the audience, both with the directing, cinematography, but most importantly, the acting, to follow this character to their final point. When you, even when you know as an audience member you are walking with them and you can see the cliff ahead, you know they're not going to stop. That is another thing that adds to the tragedy and the terror and the, the tension and anxiety that is great horror from you know the 1920s to current. Uh, Alexis, I want to briefly bring this up, uh, and then Jason, I have the same question for you, uh, because you know, I have to put Brianna up there as one of the most logical and sensible characters in a horror movie ever. Anthony initially says, hey, let's try to summon Candyman, and she says, no, don't be stupid. Anthony goes crazy, and she says, no, I'm leaving. She goes to the laundromat and opens the door to the dark basement looking for Burke and goes, uh-uh, and shuts the door. That she, was just, she makes... Did anyone else get, like, there, there's an old Eddie Murphy bit about it's like how... It's like black people know not to be in a scary movies with haunted houses. I was like, we see ghosts, we get the hell out. No, he goes. He says we go to a haunted house and you hear, get out. He goes, okay, we'll get the hell out out of here. Yeah, uh, it's like tell me, did anyone else kind of think that would chill? But the door, she's like, nope, and shut it and walked away. Like she makes essentially nothing but sensible decisions throughout this, and I just wanted to. That so rarely happens. Yeah, she was a very well-written character. I also love the line from her brother. What was always like, black people don't need to be summoning things. <laughs> and it's Chicago, not New Orleans. Yeah, and what what I love, I love the brother. I think the brother was one of the best parts of the movie. It was because he gave that, that breath of fresh air that let you, once something happened, he came into the scene and just, like, let you catch your breath for a moment. And it kind of took you out of what was going on. So, And I like the dynamic with them because she was sensible. And he was, like, you know, thinking that, you know, he was going on with the craziness. Being like, no, we got to get up out of here. Like, when they walk in to get her stuff, he was like, we're getting her stuff. And we're leaving. <laughs> Where are you at? You know, just kind of screaming through the house. Just kind of. And it was, and it showed the relationship between the brother and sister that you know they give each other shit at the beginning of the movie, but he cares about her to be her protector. And I thought that was a really good dynamic that not a lot of people that I've seen on reviews talk about. Absolutely it's a, agree. It's a little bit under yeah, understated as far as you know, how it's. I don't think it's given a lot of time on screen for you. Know, whatever reason uh, in, in the editing process or the writing that decided that this is a, it's a clearly important enough to film but they but you know, you, we can't you don't want to get lost in the sauce so to speak but I like that you Absolutely. accurately portraying sibling relationships like that is a lot harder than most people give it than most people think because most most especially lo especially if you go very large or very small with the budget 
if you have a sibling relationship, it tends to be utterly devoid of nuance. It's either purely antagonistic or purely, like, almost saccharinely supportive. And to get the appropriate... I, I to get the appropriate balance here of no you're i grew up with you we give each other grief but ultimately we also know each other's pain and we've got each other's backs like that's that's how that works and you know kudos to the writing for getting that uh, for getting that particular bit across and there's a really great scene between the siblings where they talk about uh, their father and further again, really nice job with the subtlety. It we see what happened to Brianna and, uh, and, and their father and how he committed suicide. He kind of got lost to his art, and you see it's not overly explained. There's no scene where she talks about you know it's like my father just you know went insane. We hit that flashback she has in the nightmare, and there's definitely some extra pain to her when she sees Anthony going through what he's going through, not only because she's worried about him, but because she's sitting there going, Oh God, it's happening again. You know, she's already seen one person she loved, you know, completely lose himself to his art. And now she's worried that it's going to happen to her boyfriend. And it's really well done. And I love the scene where the siblings are talking about the storage unit and her brother's like, well, why don't we, you know, sell the art or put up a, a gallery show it's like she you know she works at a gallery it's like make it happen and she just says no that stuff killed him i'm not going near the art and, and that, brings, that brings up a really good point that i want to touch on too and uh and kind of give a little bit of clarity because the old adage is females tend to gravitate toward their significant <laughs> other that reminds them of their father figure and her to see this happen, him being an artist himself, and seeing, you know, going, basically reliving this nightmare, like you pointed out, was a nice little thing. Because it was like she gravitated to what all the good things that she loved about her father, she found in this guy. And then she starts seeing his descent into, you know, madness, basically. And the personal struggle and the personal hell that it put her through to relive that was a very nice touch. Uh, Troy's got a really nice line to her in that particular respect as she's struggling with this when he just tells her, you don't have to be there for every artist's psychotic break. And it's one of those, it's one of those things that only a sibling can say to you. you know, anyone else you might, you know, you might strike them. Like that that's that kind of thing. Like you, who the hell are you to tell me how to live my life? And if it's someone that knows if it's someone that close to you, you can see it in her performance and I want to give her credit for this. He says that and the hackles come up for half a second and then they drop because yeah, you know what, you're right. And if it were someone else I couldn't admit that to myself or to them, but it's you, so yeah, you're right. And it's all done, you know, without dialogue. It's purely in her performance. It was a really nice little moment between the two of them. Uh, okay, I... I don't think we can put off the discussion of the ending any... All, all that much longer, and it's a real... The twist and the ending. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna... Yeah. Go let me get on your soapbox, Robert. Not getting on my soapbox. I, I, I've, if you want my full discussion about my issues with the ending, again, listen to the damn you Hollywood. Mark and I talk about it. 
We talk about everything we like about the movie at length. We talk about the ending, what works, what doesn't work, etc., etc. So you want my whole nuanced thoughts? They're over there. The only thing I'm going to say about it here is I I not only didn't like it, it was so jarring and took me out of the experience of this movie so much, I almost actively dislike thinking back about the movie in some respects because it's so... That's the impact it had on me. And I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if that's just me. And I... I don't want to get too deep into that again. I already went over that at length. But I it was a it was a problem for me and in short not because they summoned the Candyman and he went on a revenge killing spree against dirty cops. I could that's fine as a general rule, I suppose. It's more that the entire discussion of the relationship between the black community and the police had been absent apart from the one bit at the very beginning of the movie. And then it just comes back up again after this movie has dovetailed into dis- other discussions about, again, the experience of the black community, the black people, the collective trauma, generational trauma, etc. Like, there's a bunch of stuff this thing talks about. And then... It's a little bit like ta- uh, the metaphor we kind of jokingly used was it's a little bit like crabs. Like the, we're discussing, you know, crabs and there's a few different subspecies of crabs. And then at the end, you get a lobster. And it's a little like, well, it's a crustacean, so it still makes sense. Like, no, this is a lobster, not a crab. And it, it was just a very jarring decision, I think, to end this movie that particular way. That's my that's my two cents on that again. You want the whole spiel? Damn you, Hollywood Mark and I talk about it at length. Alexis, I want to start with you because I, I know you had a very different experience with the ending than I did. And fair play, I'm curious about yours, how you arrived at where you did. So the floor is yours. Oh, first of all, I'm just going to say the body horror scene of him cutting off Anthony's arm Oof. and putting the uh, book into the stump. I, I I turned away during that. That was nice. That that was that was a very very effective scene. Yeah. Again, credit to um, yeah yeah Abdul Mateen. The subtlety of being in that fugue state. You see him reacting, but he is too far gone to move or to do anything about. It. Just that that tear that rolls down his eyes. You know he's in pain, but he he can't do anything about it. It's so well done. For me, it really felt that it called back to the first Candyman, the idea that when Candyman went to Helen the first time, it was because she had essentially destroyed his legend. The idea that the murders were not done by him, it was done by this gang guy, this gang member, and he's, he's basically going, you screwed up, you have ruined my story, you need to fix this. And I kind of got that a little bit out, out of this, the idea that they needed that this man who, commi- you know, what was his name? Burke, the, the guy who yes. owned the laundromat. Yeah. Well, at one point is, in fact, in, at one point is reading a Clive Barker novel, actually, which uh, it, which I found amusing. <laughs> that was a nice little subtle detail. But, yeah, I just got the idea that he wanted to find a way to repurpose the Candyman legend. He didn't long. He wanted it to be the symbol of hope for black people. The idea that these were 
the the Candyman, the the, pre, the other incarnations of the Candyman, all the incarnations of Candyman, were victims. These were people who were horribly killed, and they were innocent. And he basically said, "We need to bring that back." We need. He basically wanted to turn Candyman almost into like a vigilante for and, the for the in, poor black people of Cabrini Green. And in fact, did at the end of the movie, which I I hated that so much. Like that's you and I talked a little bit about this when that first trailer dropped, right? I yeah, I remember you big... looked at said that you said you were terrified that this film was going to suddenly become all about race relations. The fact is, I understand well, where you're coming from, but there on. is no way. Okay, okay, go ahead. That that wasn't my fear. Candyman has always been a fundamental, even the original. It talks about race relations. I I I'm fine with that. My fear was that they would turn the Candyman entity into something to root for. Which I think is the wrong way to go about any slasher property. And I know Candyman's not a strict slasher, but you go with me. Your, your villainous entity should not be something you ever root for in these kinds of movies, my opinion. And I think ending the movie on the note that they did in that respect, was a mistake. You can you mentioned this to me. Uh, I think the way you put it was perfect. Something something or someone can be both a victim and a villain. Those two things are not all, at all and never have been mutually exclusive. And I think that's a line that they crossed here in this, and that's where a lot of my where some of my issues came from. For me, I still, I'm just gonna admit it. I had to sit back. And acknowledge that there are parts of that twist that I am not going to totally be able to relate to or understand. I am a 36-year-old white woman living in the Northland of Kansas City, Missouri. You know, it's like, hell, Mark and I always joke when when we reviewed um, Judas and the Black Messiah. We're like, (laughs) yeah, a couple of, you know, know, middle-aged white people from Missouri and Florida talking about a movie about the Black Panthers. (laughs) Yeah, like, this is really going to... you know, bring a lot of introspection to this, to this. And there is a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement and, such, and the portrayal of the Candyman in today's climate that I, as a white woman, am not going to get. And there were parts where I just sat back and I was like, this, this ending was not totally 100% made for me. So. Okay. Dorian, that, that, that was my that, that's fair. So, Dorian, the ending, and then I threw a fair bit out there about my personal theory on you know horror villains, especially these kind of supernatural pseudo-slashers, and what makes them work and what doesn't. And if you disagree with me, sir, by all means, I, I threw a fair bit out there right then. So, If you could actually just give me a couple minutes, I'm getting my notes together. If we could move to Mr. Teasley so I can get okay. stuff together. I did not know we'd be talking about the ending, so I'm sorry. I'm trying to no worries, no worries. So, Jason, you, you had a similar reaction to Mark and I about the ending being a little bit of a swerve, so... Uh... Yeah, uh, I, it, it took me out. Uh, and the moment that it took me out is when you get the reveal that he was the baby from the original. I actually... I, just not to cut you off, I actually liked that. It was I thought it was a nice callback. Well, I would... I, I, it was a love-hate thing. Mm. I liked it in the sense that it tied it back to it, but what I didn't like it is they leaned too heavy into it uh, to make him the quote-unquote 
um, figure of Candyman. Uh, I would have liked it if they would have just kind of kept it subtly or even made Burke, you know, played it as Burke being one of the children that did it. And, you know, instead of saying, okay, he has to come back to take on the, the mantle of Candyman, the baby has to return. That's the that's the part I didn't like. Now, as for the ending, the whole cop thing, I didn't hate it. I was taken out of it, I guess you could say, because it tied everything in. I think they could have handled it a little bit differently. Uh, I like the fact that, you know, he gets in the car and he's basically concocting a story to, you know, paint the picture. And, you know, she summons Candyman. I I like the fact that if they would have just had him appear in the vehicle behind her and just, you know, where you didn't have, you had that sudden, like, you know, that he's, he's gone a step and then have, once he kills the guy in the policeman in the vehicle with her, then it like, he then goes out and, you know, as the cops pull up, he just annihilates them. I I think that that would have been a little bit, I would have enjoyed that a little bit more instead of the whole, I felt that they dragged that scene out just a little bit too long uh, with him stalking around the vehicle before killing him. Okay. Uh, I I think that they would have just made it one of the, the, uh, like a sudden kill or, and I would have loved, instead of, you know, chasing him around the corner and everything, and, you know, and killing him there. Uh, I, I would have liked the more sudden kill. And I think it would have made, like, basically, and positioned him as her protector to let her go free and him take care of the corrupt cops that were there. I, I, I would have liked that a little bit better as him being basically her savior rather than trying to take on the, the symbolism of a community savior. And so yeah. she could live out and she could live out and um, embellish the Candyman lore to bring, to keep the idea of the Candyman alive. Okay, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. All right, Dorian, you ready? Yes, I am. Uh, all first right. of all, let me apologize to everyone. I didn't know it was going to be spoilers, so I, I had notes in different directions. Um, no worries. First of all, I want to um, um, talk about what you, you – uh, the second part of your question you gave me about you know horror um, mm-hmm. killers and monsters in, in, in general. One of the things I think makes Candyman stand out apart from skin color, although that is a huge part of it, and you know I believe one of the first – actually, no, the first um, black – horror monster or villain that actually had character and wasn't just a sidekick or, you know, part of a zombie horror. Yeah. But this character is so different in every – like, every horror monster is different. Like, Dracula, he's a monster. He's feeding. He's, he's evil. You know, he wants to corrupt. Uh, Frankenstein's creature, by um, comparison, though, is not because he's like, I don't know how this works. I'm, I'm trying to understand, and everyone's treating me horribly fine. I'm going to fight back. Um, giving those two points as juxtaposition, I like the fact that Candyman 
leans into this weird gray area of, you know, from a certain point of view, not to go all Obi-Wan, but from a certain point of view, you can almost understand why he's necessary. And here, here this comes to my notes. Um, Mr. Cheesley said that he felt that they leaned too heavy into that. Uh, and I can understand where that point of view is coming from. The only difference is, for, for me, yes, I, I am a white boy. However, the only thing I will add to my resume on that is I was born and raised in northeast Kansas City. Um, I was surrounded – like I think I was one of only three white families in that area. It's like a like 12 to 16-block radius. Uh, I don't exactly remember. But I got called things for hanging out with black kids and uh, Hispanic kids and stuff like that. I will not say on this podcast or pretty much any form of, of media. But to me, when I, I first saw this movie, I really appreciated Candyman because it was – not only was he a romantic figure like Dracula, as I said earlier – but he was almost a spirit of vengeance, and the ending for me I loved because – and the director said this best. I got to see an interview with her. She called it demented catharsis, and okay. for me, I completely got that. I, com- I, I completely connect. I'm like, I agree. I agree. Even as still a white boy, the way I dress, the way I talk because of where I was raised, I get – pushed into that, oh, you're the poor, get out of here, we don't want you in our, you know, country club, you know, sipping seltzer water area, and that's not everywhere, and I'm not, in, I want to make very clear right now, I am not insulting anyone with what I say following, because we're going to go back to the movie. What I saw in the ending was that the character is given a choice by the police, it's like, okay, she's either got to screw herself over and get, you know, taken in or she's got to screw over you know basically um um so i can't remember the character's name um burke um and up until that moment the candy man's really been seen as a victim of racial violence um with you know even what we saw in two and three um what i felt the ending did when she she she's saying it in the rear mirror and you know, Candyman appears and just butchers the cops. Is it's not just Tony Todd's Daniel Robitaille. It's not just Anthony anymore. It is all the anger of the ghosts together, all of their hate through a focusing crystal. Like it's take, like taking a magnifying glass through the sun and burning that ant. Um, is it's all this power and hate focused on these people who, you know, and with the police have how how they've they've treated black people and Hispanic people, and in certain cases, especially during the, the 60s, you know, the white people who would stand next to you know, the civil rights movement were murdered. And this, to me, the reason I loved the ending, and I'm down with it, is it's, it's – Alexis is right. It does kind of become a vigilante, but in a good way. It's a, a element of fear that you, know, you don't want to go down greeny green and cause problems for your cop. You don't want to co- go down there and cause problems anyways because there's the candy man and he doesn't care. He will he will go through you like, you know, a knife through warm butter. The characters even though it's it's focused through Anthony's character as a ghost, they've they've become death now. And the only thing that threw me off a little bit was that he didn't kill her. But from a writing point of view I almost wondered is this sequel bait? You know, like if everyone likes this, we get a second one where she's kind of almost outrunning her ex-boyfriend's ghost who really doesn't want to kill her but because of the curse maybe has to 
you know, maybe that's you know almost a contractual thing. I didn't know about that. Um, but you know, I <clears throat> I still enjoyed that with him being the kid from the first one. A part of me, as a huge horror fan, loved that because I'm like, man, connection. I love when these things happen. I can also understand though why the audience felt it was like a out of nowhere or b forced is that there's not a lot of hints throughout the movie. If there had been, that'd been great. I, I hate to jump to another sh- movie that's or another sequel of a good movie series that's shitty, but uh, in The Crow 2, City of Angels, they make it very obvious that the character that you see at the start that's kind of walking you through is Sarah because we see the little, you know, clown mask from the first one. You're like, okay, and we see the ring that, you know, was, was the, the two characters. So it gave you a sense of, oh, this is connected to the first one because we have these moments, and if you've seen the first one, you know that. With this one, I felt they did not give us enough lead-in. It almost, Sorry, and I hate to say this because I do love this movie, I, I, it I'm almost muted. felt what? a little too soap proper like And yes, yes I please. am the child from the first one. Dun, dun, dun. You know, okay. And, you know, cut, cut to yeah. black. Tune in next uh, time. Chicken sandwiches um, but overall, and the Dr. Pepper. I felt Thank the you. ending was strong. I felt it, it, it told a message. I will say that I love uh, the fact that this movie lets you know what it was saying at, at the first. It didn't leave a lot to the imagination in that in that sense because I believe it's a message that needs to be said. It, it is one that affects our, our day-to-day life in the world today and not in the sense of like, hey, stop, you know, stop being racist or somebody with a hook will come kill you. It's this is an issue that we are framing in this story. So to me, I absolutely love the ending. I have I have very little to no problems with it and I guess to me, I'll wrap up with this. It's kind of a pick your battles thing. Um, it's not a battle for me that I'm like, okay, I have a few issues, but they're not that big. Okay. Yeah, and uh, just, to, just to hop in, real, just hop in real quick. Uh, the point I made when they leaned into it was him being the kid, uh, and because, mm-hmm. like you said, they didn't leave. You did have those breadcrumbs, and 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 like you pointed out, it felt like really forced. Like it was like, okay, this is we're forcing this because you get that review on the hospital that. She says, oh, you were born here, and then you automatically know who he is. Uh, And you know he's going to go confront his mother. That's what I meant by they leaned too hard into it. If they would have slowly brought that along, like, like, especially the the fact that, you know, he moved into the area and his mother was trying to, they just sprinkled in, his mother kept trying to get a hold of him a little bit more to basically try to shield him from finding out the truth, I think that would have been a, a, a little bit better, would have helped to reveal a little bit more, I guess you could say. I absolutely, I absolutely agree on that. And I'm sorry, I misunderstood your leaned into it thing. Um, it's I'm fine, it's fine. Together, so I was like, ah! No, you because like I said, I was, if I was you, gonna, go ahead, Alyssa. I, I was just say, can we at least all agree that it was a nice touch to get the actress from the original yes. Amanda yeah. Return as Anthony? Uh-huh. 100%. Yes, I did like I did like that Easter egg. Uh, I think just kind of to the point being raised here a little bit about the ending. I think there's a bit of a problem with the writing of this, and this is a very broad problem, and it's it's a this is both broad and minor, so just kind of I, I'm not like let me get through this. It this was written by three people. This was written by Jordan Peele. Uh, Nia DaCosta, and one of Peele's writing partners, Wynne Rosenfeld. 
this movie also a little bit comes across like a movie written by more than one person in that respect. Not quite the sort of like patchwork that, say, Ant-Man is, which you can watch each individual scene of Ant-Man and pick out which of the three directors directed it. It never quite uh, achieves cohesion like that. This one is not that, it's not that extreme. It's more thematic. It feels like one of them wanted to talk about gentrification, which is sprinkled throughout parts of the early phases of this movie. One of them wanted to talk about uh, you know, police brutality. And one of them wanted to make a horror movie that had a lot of references to the some of the original Candyman uh, films. And they blend together reasonably well. This Again, this is not jarring from scene to scene. But I do think that the overall writing of this suffered a little bit because you had three different ideas about things that this movie wanted to talk about that, at least three, you can probably pick out more if you wanted to go back through it with a finer tooth comb than I'm using at the moment. And as a result, they all get touched on but never really explained or expounded upon in any sort of more meaningful way that either limiting the focus a little bit or perhaps even a longer runtime might have achieved now i think a longer runtime might have hurt this movie more than helped it if we go beyond about another 10 minutes give or take just kind of by the nature of the story they're telling but uh, my two cents on that you know, feel free to agree or disagree alexis Sorry, I, I thought it all blended in pretty well. Okay. I, you know, I, I can understand where you're coming from, but, you know, I thought it worked all pretty well as one story. Okay. Uh, Dorian, Jason, any, uh, in that order, so we don't talk over each other. Uh, thoughts on my, you know, my kind of perspective there, if you think I'm, uh, you know, again, swinging it air or et cetera? I, I respectfully disagree. Okay. That the first movie, I cannot, and shame on me for being a bad film nerd, I can't remember if the first film had one or two writers. I seem to remember that Clive Barker was involved, but I don't believe he was the sole screenwriter, and I want to say there were two others. But that's neither here nor there. Um, what I'm saying, and the reason I respectfully disagree, is because the first film was the same way. It, there was one part of the movie that wanted to talk about gentrification, and it did. There was another part of the movie that, in this case, you know, where this one talks about police brutality, the first one talked about people being forgotten. Um, Virginia Madsen has this amazing line um, while they're, they're in this amphitheater thing. <clears throat> she says to her friend, she's like, people get killed there every day, nothing happens. But a white woman gets killed there, oh dear God, it's on the news. And that line has always stuck with me, and I loved it. So I felt that what they were doing with the police brutality, even though it's really kind of only at the start and the beginning, or the, sorry, the start and the ending, I beg your pardon, um, was a, a callback to the original one, these people being forgotten and just shoved to the side, you know, stay in the shadows, we don't want to, we want to, we want to pretend that you don't exist. Um, okay, uh, perfect world that we've created. Yeah, I, I have a reference point for you. Actually, the, uh, the 92 version was apparent, the only screenplay credit is given to Bernard Rose, who was also the director. Okay. Thank you. I was like, I, I couldn't remember. I was like, I know. Clive I had to look that. I had to look it up. I didn't remember it. <laughs> but no, no. Again, I, I always appreciate being fact checked because unless I, unless I have it in front of me, then I'm I'm not swearing to anything. Um, but the, the final point is, 
you said that it felt like somebody wanted to make a horror movie with callbacks, and I feel like that's what they wanted to do in the original one too. They wanted to talk about gentrification in the case of you know you know someone being forgotten. And the, and the the other thing is that even if it only being one writer, they wanted to do all these things, but also they wanted to make a fun horror movie. That if you didn't want to read into everything, you could just go, hey, this was a crazy cool horror movie, and you know the horror villain was kind of sexy, loving it, you know. But if you wanted to read into it, it was there. It, it, yeah, it's I, my my point of view. Yeah, I, I listened to uh, the the Long Road to Ruin episode that came out recently with Mark and Sean talking about the first three Candyman films. And I thought there was an interesting point raised about the first, about the 92 original. That's a movie that I don't think really speaks. As a young person, you can enjoy it, but I don't think it speaks to you until you're a little bit older and have life experience. And I I tend to think that's accurate as I think back on that film. Um, okay, last... Th- you know, as, a, as a brief aside, um, you mentioned that line from the first one. There's a nice callback to that line in this movie in the sense that you know we get bits and pieces about you know reports of uh some of the other people dying and as soon as that you know bunch of high school kids uh, high school girls are massacred in that bathroom that's when it really breaks into the news cycle man you were you stealing my thunder because that's exactly what i was getting ready to touch on man (laughs) Robert, don't be dirty like that. Uh, yeah, because I was actually, I was actually going to bring that up because you see all the deaths that do happen, but it doesn't. You, when the the art critic gets killed, it's all over the news. When the high school students get killed, it's all over the news. But everything else is like pushed aside, and it's not really taking like it's like the the de- other deaths are. It's a common occurrence, but but these deaths are more important, and I really liked how it tackled that uh, because it shows it shows how things can be manipulated and twisted, and uh, when something wants to have the light shown on it, how how it can be influenced, and I really liked how they tackled it. it they didn't beat you over the head with it. So if you wasn't really looking for it, you was like, okay, you know, but, you know, us four being, you know, having the civil discussion, we all kind of picked up on it, I feel, and was like, okay, we see what's going on here, and we see the subtlety of it without beating us over the head. Now, to go back to uh, you, I actually agree with you, Robert, and I I know that that's that's weird that me and you actually agree on a whole lot of things. (laughs) But I think you summed it up uh, really good um, with y- your your uh, synopsis of it there at the end. So, but yeah, I, I like the fact that the whole Cabrini Green's forgotten about until uh, until they want to bring uh, a limelight to the shit that's going on. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, you know, if I not to make the obvious quote, but if I might quote Heath Ledger's Joker, as long as it's all part of the plan, everyone is happy to go along with it. Uh, all right. We've been at this for an hour and twenty minutes now, and uh, so last thing I want to touch on, uh, I want to go around the horn again, and your favorite 
sequence from the movie. So, uh, be that scary, be that subtle, whatever. Uh, your whatever it is you haven't got to talk about yet that you want to touch on. Sequence that we haven't talked about yet that I rather enjoyed, even if it's a little bit expected. Um, when he uh, when our when Anthony gets into the totally mirrored elevator. It's an expected sequence. You know, you kind of know what you're in for as soon as it starts, but I thought it was executed well, and I... Sometimes the hardest thing to do is what's expected, uh, as the old phrase goes, as far as that's concerned, so... I wanted to give a little bit to that. I thought it was a well-shot sequence, and then the bit at the end when he just kind of slowly picks himself up off the floor as the other college students look in at this crazy guy who's half-splayed out on the ground of the elevator... Uh, there's not a lot of comedic, even like gallows humor to be had in this film. There are bits and pieces of it, but that was a, that was a moment that I kind of got a little bit of a chuckle out of. So, uh, Jason, I'll start with you. Uh, anything that we haven't touched on yet, any specific sequences or other bits of the film craft that you wanted to touch, to touch on? I mean, we've kind of touched on everything from start to finish. The one thing that I did like is, uh, that we haven't touched on is the first time that he goes goes there he hears the he hears the lore he's here's the story and you know it kind of gets plants that seed in his head and then when he goes in and jumps the fence to see how dilapidated it is but then it, the camera kind of pans away and you you see like it starts where where he's leaving his nice real real nice high rise that's real close to Cabrini Green. You see the dilapidation, and then the camera kind of pans back, and you see the stark contrast in the close proximity. I really like how that was framed, and just to give you the idea of your the exploitation that is the underlying thing of what's going on. Alexis? It's a minor thing, but one of the elements that kind of caught my attention is the idea of the celebrity of the artwork and how that sort of helps, you know, you know, add to Anthony's madness. You get the scene where they're talking about finding, uh, the, I guess it's the gallery owner and his intern yeah. dead. And we're watching Anthony react to it and he's, you know, he's in shock. But at the same time, they mention the name of his piece and they mention his name because, you know, and he's he's a little happy. He's like, holy crap, they mentioned they mentioned my art piece. And then it pans back and you see he's sitting there with Brianna and her brother <laughs> and they're just looking. I'm like, that's your takeaway of this. But then you also get that's to see where he's called me with the art critic who had formally told him that his piece was crap. For the record, I actually did like the piece and the idea that you had to open up the mirror to really see the actual pieces. I thought that was kind of creative. But then all of a sudden she's talking about how the piece has grown on her and she wants to do a more of an expose on it. And it's very, it's a subtle way, but again, it really kind of helps pull Anthony deeper into the mythos. The idea that these deaths surround, you know, close to his work is helping him to finally achieve the fame that he has been so looking for for years. Yeah. They mentioned about how he did such a great paintings, like that piece with um, the, the rope, uh, you know, across the, the man's chest. And they said about how that was so, you know, powerful, but it's done. And it's like, and they're like, we need the new you. We can't you can't keep turning in the old stuff. 
And it's very easy to see him become very seduced by this idea that he has found his muse. He has found something that is going to catapult him to fame in the art world. I'm not nearly as artistically inclined as I used to be, but I certainly remember the kind of the feeling you get when you finally find something that speaks to you like that. It's a, it's a bit of a euphoric high that I don't think is replicable no matter how many people might try with other you know, chemicals and whatnot. It's it's a very unique experience. Uh, okay, Dorian, last last thoughts, anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to? Uh, yeah, it's not, you, you asked for like another favorite sequence we hadn't talked about. It's not mm-hmm. much a sequence, but this, this falls into my, my film nerd and horror nerd. Um, the sound design and the music was enrapturing. Uh, it didn't have the, you know, the memorableness of like the Halloween theme or you know something like that, but it had this this understated subtleness that really drew me in. Um, Any time that situation is happening, there is like an underlying sound that you can you can hear, you can almost feel. And the people who did the music really, I I, I don't know for sure. I have to look this up. But I feel like they worked hand in hand with the science sound design department. It's like we're going to team up on this and make this an experience, less of a, or instead of a, hey, here's the stuff that's going on on screen, and here's some sounds and music that will somehow attach. But that to me was was, I love the movie. Um, I'm going to buy it as soon as it comes out. I'm actually going to go see it again on Friday. Uh, I've already got my tickets. Um, because I want another swing at it. Um, especially now having talked to all of you and. I guess another part of my final thoughts, as as the guest here, first of all, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for all of your points of view on it. I'm I'm going to go into my second viewing with everything you've brought, and I think it's going to make the experience even better. You know, on that note, just a bit on the sound design, I'm glad you brought it up. The sound, I don't know how they did it. I don't know what their what the you know actual bit that they used was, but the sound that you and it always happens off screen, but you get this really nice, almost like not fully solid mirror breaking sound it, it, it always kind of it, it had a liquid feel to me to it just a little bit uh that and you get it pretty much anytime he kills someone off screen just the sound that oh crap he's coming through the mirror and i don't know what it was exactly but it was whatever they found that made that uh chef's kiss man perfect absolutely perfect and I, 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 I agree. I, I'm, I'm still looking. I'm, I'm looking up online. No one's, no one's figured it out yet. I mean, I have some theories of my own, but um, I'm not sure if any of them are right. If I do find out what it is, I will send that to Alexis and have her send it to you so that that mystery can be solved for you. Appreciated. Now, speaking of sound, sorry about the background noise over here. Oh, you're good. They're just uh, upset that they're not being able to give their thoughts on the film. You know, they they feel prejudiced against, and you know, a lot of this film is about prejudice. So they're trying to speak out. You know, it's... I try going in other rooms when they're playing, and then they just follow me and keep playing around me. It's like, oh my god, can you two go play in the other room? Please? I'm pretty sure. Look, it's Eddie just trolling you at this point. He knows what's up, and he he gets a laugh out of it. All right. On that note, again, I think we've kind of hit everything that we wanted to hit as far as this film goes. Uh, again, I might have issues with the ending, but I still think this is a very, very well-made film. I enjoyed eight-tenths of it, and I certainly recommend people see it. It's not... 
I can kind of set aside my personal reaction to the end of it a little bit in that respect and go, this was an enjoyable film. And if you like horror movies, certainly uh, th this is certainly going to be up your alley for the most part. And even if you don't, I mean, Mark Radulich is not a big horror guy. He enjoyed the vast majority of this film, too. So give it a shot if you're so inclined. If you're if you're on the fence about it, if you I mean, now that we've talked about everything that happens, uh, I would certainly encourage you to give it a shot. It's a it is a very well made movie. And I I really liked the direction. This is the last thing I need to say briefly. And then we're going to close up shop here. Uh, you know, I liked Nia DaCosta's directorial influence. I liked what a lot of what she did here. I'm very interested to see what she does in the future. Uh, I mean, we already know she signed on to do the Captain Marvel sequel. So I'm curious to see what she'll do with a bigger budget in a much more controlled studio setting, because that's what you get when you sign up for that particular property, along with a giant paycheck. So I'm curious to see what she'll do, and definitely someone I'm going to be paying attention to going forward. All right, on that note, let's get into anything we all would like to plug here. Jason, I will start with you, sir. Uh, just, you could find me on Twitter. Uh, at Second and Short Podcast, where I have taken all my fantasy football knowledge and actually put to use. Uh, we drop TikToks daily, just about daily. Uh, we got a podcast, comes out every Thursday. And, you know, we sprinkle in uh, a couple of other podcasts throughout the week, too. So you can find us on YouTube or any of your streaming platforms, Second and Short Podcast. You might actually learn something that you didn't know. Probably not, especially since it's coming from me. It's football. There's an, it is an endlessly interesting game if you're so inclined to enjoy it because of its oh. infinite permutations. And I'll take this opportunity to actually plug my lovely wife, who just got the podcasting bug, and her and Liz Puglisi has started a Hallmark movie podcast. So once that goes up, I will be plugging that occasionally when I do do appearances here when Mark ropes me into something. Uh, it's called Hallmark is Where the Heart Is, uh, which I actually came up with. So it's kind of cool. I hope you get a percentage. Uh, so uh, I get the percentage. My wife tells me the only thing that I get is the luxury of living here. Uh, so I think that's just pretty good. Uh, so. You out as often. Oh no! Uh, after after buying her a thirty five thousand dollar vehicle, I don't get chewed out too much. Uh, Wait, bulletproof, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. So I'll be plugging that. Look for that for me to plug that in the future once they find a platform to go on. Um, and it's been a it's been a joy talking to all of us, getting of the various different ideas and seeing different perspectives, how we all four took this movie in, which I really enjoyed. All right. Uh, Dorian, you're new here. So anything you would like to plug that you've got upcoming in the or, you know, have done in the past that you would like the people to know about? Um, yeah, actually, yeah, we are currently working on a film called Hagrid. Uh, it's going to be a festival film, so unfortunately there's not going to be a lot out on it. You know, it's, it's not going to be something you can see on platforms for probably the next six to you know, seven months uh, at least. But um, <clears throat> there, are, there are new posters coming out. Um, it's the story of someone who is um, haunted by something in their life that they can't get rid of. Uh, and it's, it's a film that is a psychological 
horror film that we're, we're very excited about. Uh, again, uh, Miss, Mrs. Alexis Henya is helping us with it. She is the gaffer. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's the person who sets up the lights and makes sure that lighting looks great. And we have a good shot. She's also uh, going to be working with uh, another one of our production designers, uh, Ms. Kashaline Connolly, on creating two posters that I'm very excited about. It's going to be coming out probably by the middle of September uh, is what I'm hoping on, getting everything printed. Uh, but the film's called Hag Ridden. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Dorian Price uh, at Facebook. Um, we will have a page for the film coming up soon. But, yeah, that's that's what we're working on right now. Um, a lot of um, – uh, I said this before the podcast started. Uh, I, I had to take over a company or kind of inherited a company from a person who died in 2018. Um, and for any of you listening, <clears throat> excuse me, don't feel bad about that. He was a horrible person. But um, so we're rebranding the company. It does have a YouTube channel right now, but we're changing a lot of stuff. The original content will be on there, um, but we're adding new stuff, so more on that to come. Hopefully I get invited back to the show, and I can tell you all about that then. Um, but, yes, I would like to also mirror, no pun intended, what uh, Mr. Cheesley said. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with all of you, and, again, thank you for letting me be on the show. Um, to all the listeners, I, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope we, uh, we gave you some stuff that you really enjoyed and, you know, we'll Again, help you want to go see the film because it's great. Um, love it or hate it. Um, the old saying is it's not it's not what you like, it's the fact that you like. So go out there, find out what you think, and post your own thoughts online. So again, thank you very much. Hey, you have been a very wonderful addition to this particular panel. I thank you very much for coming on. So uh, we're, we're pretty loose about letting people on here. I mean, Mark let me onto one show, and now I do everything almost. So uh, you, you might get so stuck into do. the orbit. That's fair. Thank you. Uh, Alexis. Dorian, how did you pronounce my last name? You know what? We're not going to talk about that. That was a mic problem. Uh, technical <laughs> difficulty with the, with the sound designers. I'm going into a tunnel. Um, I'll deal with you later. Uh, all right, yes. Honeysuckle Rose Creations, where fashion meets fandom at the intersection of geek and chic. As Robert mentioned at the start of the podcast, we have just returned from the Colorado Springs Comic Con. Had a wonderful time. That was our first uh, year out there. It was a great show. It's a beautiful town, actually. I had a lot of fun uh, working out there. Hopefully, we will be returning in 2022. For now, we have two things we're getting ready for. Firstly, our Labor Day sale. Everything is going to be 15% off in both shops. And if these two dogs don't shut up, I'll throw them on listings as well. It is everything on both of our Etsy and Hamhidden Amazon stores. And after that, we're going to be heading to Cincinnati Comic Expo. That is the weekend of September 17th. We have been doing that show for years. We love it. We love going out there. Have so much fun. The people of Cincinnati are so great and they're so good to us. Cannot wait to get back there. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more of our goings on. Uh, this uh, Cincinnati will be our last convention of 2021. We're going to start working on a few more wholesale shops and uh, going to go ahead and get things ready to go for 2022's um, convention circuit. It's a little funky right now because of uh, everything that got shut down in 2020 due to COVID. And we're not sure when things are going to start getting rescheduled and back to a quote unquote normal schedule. 
So just go ahead and uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We will post as soon as we know exactly where we're going and when we're going. Again, that's Honeysuckle Rose Creations, the intersection of geek and chic. All right. If you enjoyed this particular podcast, please consider liking, commenting, and subscribing on whatever particular platform you happen to be listening to us on. If you're doing this via iTunes or the Apple Podcasts, please give us a, a star review, a star rating, and then a written review would be helpful. A lot of companies that would be interested in sponsoring our content or other sites that we might get featured, such as Rotten Tomatoes, look at certain metrics, uh, those included, to try and decide if we are worthy to enter their hallowed halls. I've seen their halls. They ain't that hallowed, but hey, they can. that's how they choose to do those things. So if you would, that would help us out. Uh, you can find me covering professional wrestling and mixed martial arts at 411mania.com. I cover AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW stuff on Wednesdays when they release stuff, and SmackDown on Fridays, and whatever the UFC does on Saturdays. I host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, so if you're a fan of mixed martial arts, please give that a listen. You can find it on any podcasting platform, to the best of my knowledge. So give that a listen. Uh, that goes live pretty much every Sunday, unless you get a rare two-week off period, in which case I will skip a week. But for the most part, every sun it records late Sunday, so Monday morning it will be in your feed, and you can listen to my discussion of mixed martial arts and anyone else who happens to be on the program if they happen to, if I happen to have a guest. Uh, used to have a full panel, now it's just me because, well, life. All right. That's it. want to thank my everyone for being a part of this show. This was a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking film with a variety of people. And uh, so thank you to everyone again for being on. Thank you again for listening. As a reminder to everyone, per usual, please stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>